You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey, everybody, quick note before we begin. Just wanted to thank you all for listening to the podcast. We're well over 125 episodes now, and I want to thank you so much for your thoughts and your notes and your comments. Uh, We're trying to do lots of stuff to make the podcast even better, including improve the sound. We're getting there. We're getting there. I hope if you enjoy the podcast, you'll do me a favor and leave us a big old juicy review. Spread the word about the podcast. Get it out there, and we'll get more and more exciting guests for you. Leave a review, let your friends know, and enjoy this week's episode. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kendavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week, one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's kendavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Hello, everybody. My name is Ken Davenport. This is the Producer's Perspective podcast. I am honored to have as our guest today, actor, writer, producer, Mr. Chaz Palminteri. Welcome, Chaz. Uh, It's good to be here. So as an actor, Chaz has appeared in over 50 films, including Analyze This, The Usual Suspects, and of course, his Oscar-nominated performance in Bullets over Broadway, one of my favorites. And of course, the show that put him on the map, the one-man show that became a movie that has now become a Broadway musical, a Bronx Tale. Now, normally, this is the part of the podcast where I'd ask you where you're from, but I think we all know where you're from. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> so, tell me a little bit. Look, we, we know the story, and if, if you don't know the story, get over to the theater and check it out. But we know a little bit of how you grew up and where you grew up. And mm. my first question is for you, in that neighborhood, in that environment, how did you come to wanting to be an actor? Like, where were you exposed to the theater? Well, my mother used to take me to the theater a lot, to the, excuse me, to the movies a lot. We couldn't afford to go to the theater, really, back then when I was a little boy. And she just loved the movies, my mother and my dad. And they would take me to the cinema. And I just look, I would just watch. And I remember seeing the colors. And I remember, I think the first movie I saw was, I think I must have been about six or seven. And I remember it was sick Technicolor. And I remember the colors. And I was just fascinated with the movies. And by the time I was about 10, I wanted to do that. I know, it's strange. but And, and then when I just would, would tell stories to the guys and imitate the wise guys in the neighborhood. And, and by 16, 17, I, I said, this is, you know, I want to do this. And I went to a Bronx Community College and, be, and majored in drama and just something I always wanted to do. And I used to write. I was a writer too then. I would write poetry. I would write short little stories, you know. This is what I wanted to do, but you literally got your start doing like impressions on the corners, like just and acting I, out. Little just stories. kind of acting out. Literally, literally, when I did the one man show, I was doing that when I was like twelve. I would imitate Frankie Coffee Cake and all the guys, and and I just continued on. And then I did it, and I wrote a show behind it, and I did this one man show. Yeah. Okay, let's follow this because I'm, I'm of course fascinated by your story being the, the self produced entrepreneur that yeah. you are. So you go to school, you go to Bronx Community College, yeah. majored in drama. Yeah. What was the first show you performed in? Did you do anything there? I, I did a show at that right around that time called Twenty Two Years at the Manhattan Theater Club. It wasn't very good. It wasn't a good show. It didn't last too long. But I remember Danny DiCarlo was my first part, if I remember correctly. 
what what happened was Ken was I started to like sing. I was singing because I, I, I was with a singing group, a doo-wop group, and then I started singing with a band. And so all of a sudden, my singing career started to take off where I made money. When I say take off, it doesn't mean like became a star. I think we just started working in clubs and. Then we had a big following, so I started making money and going back and forth to acting, and I studied with Michael Shirtliff, and then I got into the actor's studio, and I studied with Lee Strasberg. Well, I couldn't study with Lee Strasberg right away. You had to wait to get into his class, and then I did wait, and I got into his class, and I auditioned. And it was actually Lee who said to me, you know, you got to make up your mind. What do you want to do? Because I would always study, then go do a showcase, then go off on the road with the band. And then finally he said, like, you got to decide what you want to do, you know. If you want to be an actor, you got to start. Because I said, I make money doing this, you know, Lee. And he said, well, okay, then do that. But if you really want to do this, you have to be here. You have to get an agent, you, have to, you know. And then I quit the music, uh, you know. And in 19, I quit the music in 1979. And then in 82, I got a part as an understudy on Broadway. Which was very funny. Uh, and it's only funny because it's a funny story. I told it on David Letterman once. What, what happened was, I got a pause, and then all my friends in the neighborhood said, my God, you're on Broadway. We want to come and see you. And all the wise guys wanted to come and see me, you know. And I said, well, you really can't. And they were like, what do you mean? Are you on Broadway? You're not on Broadway. I said, well, I'm an understudy. And the wise guy, this one big wise guy, said, well, what's an understudy? I said, well, if something happens to the guy, then I go on. Not realizing what I just said. And about 15 minutes later, he walks over to me and says, you want to go on? And I was, I was like, what? And he says, don't worry, we'll make it look like a mugging. And I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. I said, no, no, like, please don't do that. And I had to talk my way out. You know, tell, I, that's why these guys are crazy. And and then, I did, you know, I did some shows. I did, I did off-Broadway, you know. And then I went out to L.A. in 86, and I, I, I took off. I mean, I got on Hill Street Blues, Madlock, Dallas. I, I was, you know, knocking them out. And, and then I did all the shows on TV. And then I ran out of money. Again, after a couple of years, that money sustained me. I was living in a small apartment, had a, not a nice car, but I was, I had my, my nut was so low that I was able to sustain. But then I was running out of money and I, I got a job as a doorman, this swanky club in Beverly Hills, because I used to box, you know, and, um, I got a job there one night. I was there for like a couple of months. And one night this guy came over to me. He was really rude. And he was pushing me out of the way. And, I, and he said, don't you know who I am? I said, yeah, you're the guy who's not getting in tonight. And he said, you're going to be fired in 15 minutes. I'll never forget it. And 15 minutes later, I was fired, just like he said. And the guy was Swifty Lazar. Swifty Lazar was the biggest agent in the world at the time. And I did not recognize him. I should have with the big glasses. I don't know how I didn't recognize him, but I didn't. I don't know. And I went home and I sat at the edge of my bed and I said, what the hell am I going to do? Am I going to go back to New York? Am I going to stay here? Then I said, you know what? If they won't give me a great part, I'll write one myself. And I went to Thrifty Drugstore. I got five tabs of the yellow paper. And I said, well, what should I write about? I said, I'll write about the killing that I saw when I was nine years old because I never forgot that. Said, yes, I'll write about that. And I wrote this killing and I kind of, it was like a monologue. And I did it for my theater workshop. And everybody was kind of blown away by it. And I said, wow, okay. I said, I'm going to keep going with this. Tell the story about Sonny and my father and me. How it was like a triangle. And I kept writing and writing. And after eight months of editing and putting and moving things around, I had 
90 minutes of a one-man show after about like 10 months. And then I had no money. So I said, but I, how am I going to produce this thing? So I called a friend of mine, a legitimate friend, but I'm on this thing. And I told him, I said, look, I'm looking. You always wanted to be a producer. I said, I got a play. You want to invest? He goes, eh, let me think about it. And I thought he blew me off. The next day, I, I get a cash, I get a check for forty thousand dollars. And this is what year? Uh, nineteen eighty nine. So forty thousand dollars in nineteen eighty nine. That's a big chunk of yeah. cash. And I called him up. I said, Why did you send me that? And he said, Well, I believe in you. I, I saw you in a few plays. I think you got talent. I'll take a shot with you. You know, he was a club owner. You know, and. Uh, he sent me the money, and I, I used the money. I put it up. I put the play up. Bam! My life just changed. It was like, I'm telling you, kid, it was like, bam! Every writer, director, producer, actor, studio head was coming to this little theater to see this show. The reviews were, like, incredible. And I was just, what is going on? Just like that. And then a week later, I got offered $250,000. Universal called me up at my house. You had no agent at this point. No agent. I did this thing to get an agent. Okay, no agent. Two hundred fifty thousand dollars. I I got offered. I was like, wow, two hundred fifty thousand dollars. I said, great. I said, but I play Sunny and I write this screenplay. And they went, no, no, we just want to buy the rights of the story. And I was thought about it. And I said, no, I'm not doing it. And still looking, waiting. Now all the agents are chasing me now. They want to sign me. ICM, William Morris. Uh, CAA. Swifty? Was Swifty there? Swifty? Uh, if I'm not mistaken, Swifty was gone by then. You know, this was, I, I think Swifty died a little after that. And I finally, uh, signed with William Morris. And, and then all of a sudden we got, I got another offer for one million dollars about a month later. And they still wouldn't, they wouldn't give me the rights to, to do it. I turned it down. Went back to my little dumpy apartment with my car with the hole in the radiator. They kept leaking water. I keep putting water in the car. And then finally, I'm sitting there, and um, I do the show, and I get off stage, and the stage manager runs over to me and says, Robert De Niro is in your dressing room. You just saw the show. He's waiting for you. I said, Robert De Niro's in my dressing room? He said, yeah. I walk down there. I go in the dressing room. There's Robert De Niro. I said, hey, hey Bob, how you doing? He says, hey. He goes, that was the greatest one-man show I ever saw. He said, that's a movie. You did a movie on stage. I said, yeah, I know. He goes, Chaz, this is what I want to do. I said, Bob, this is how crazy I was. I said, Bob, before you say anything, I have to play. He goes, I, he goes, I know, I know. Let me tell you how I feel. You should play Sonny. You'll be great as Sonny. And you should write the screenplay because it's your life and it'll be honest. I'll play your father. I'll direct it. I'll make it right. And if you shake my hand, that's the way it'll be. I shook his hand, and that's what happened. Okay, so I have so many questions along the way here. But first, let, do you do you know what gave you the courage to be that, frankly, ballsy? Yeah. Turn down 250000 a million, and even to say, like, what was it going on in you that made, how old were you at that point? I was born in 52, so, uh, what was I, 38? So you're not like a kid. Well, I said I wasn't a kid. Even, you're not like a cocky kid. You're oh, a guy who, like, I need to have a nicer car with a hole in my I'm, I'm approaching 40 years old. I don't have a net. I got nothing. Nothing. So what was it that you dug into deep inside that made you go, Okay, this? it was a constant belief that my mother father told me that I was great. And I had great confidence. I always had confidence that I could do it. I always said, I could do this. I know I could do this. I could do this like any, as good as anybody can. I know it. And I just, and plus, you know, I believe in, I believe in divine intervention. I believe God had a hand in it. You know, that he just said, 
you know, that I said, I'm doing this and I'm going to, I'm going to play this part, you know, but I had everybody chasing me. Do you know what I mean, Ken? It was I like, do not know what you no, mean, actually. No, I'm saying, it's <laughs> but not, I look forward no, to it. It's Sunday. not like, you know, maybe if there was only one person interested, uh, I don't, it was like everybody. It was the biggest event since Rocky. See, it only happens, what happened to me only happens once every like 15, 20 years. Rocky, Bronx Tale, my big fat Greek wedding. Something like that only happens in Hollywood once every 15, 20 years where it just becomes a feeding frenzy. So let's take a look at those three shows for or movies or stories mm. and try to figure out what, because look we all know the material is great you're a great performer all yeah. that but is there something else that you think about this type of story that made everyone go oh my god I got to get my hands on this is there something unique about it the look, two well, of the three are Italians maybe we'll just say yeah well Peter Guba said it best I think because I met with him to do the movie and he was he was wonderful. Very smart guy. And he's looked at me, he goes, what you did on stage, Chaz, I'll never forget it. He goes, you did the greatest audition for an actor and the greatest pitch for a writer. And I said, I never thought of it like that. But he was right. I, I acted 18 characters and I pitched the movie. I made you see the movie. See, one person shows that, that I, I, what I did is not really a one person show. I did 18 people. It's not like one person shows you a guy talking about his life, then he does a character, then he talks to the audience. I did a linear story. It's a linear story straight through a whole movie without stopping. That's what made it like, oh my God, it's a movie. And all the reviews said the genesis of a great, great movie. So I'm sure there are a lot of people listening right now like, ooh, here's a great quick way for me to get my big movie made. But was was that a thought of yours when you were writing this? Or I did this it? to get an agent. That's it. I went, I just wanted to be recognized to get an agent. I didn't have an agent. You know, I said, I'm going to do something that's going to be, that's I'm going to stand out. I mean, that's what I wanted. I, to, I said, I'm going to do something. To, and now I'm the, you know, I've, I've been working with so many different people. One person shows. I teach a class on it once or twice a year, you know. I mean, I really, you know, I, I know one person shows, you know. But you didn't at the start. You weren't, you hadn't. No. Did you take class about no. writing a one person show? No, no, not at all. But I was always a storyteller. Like I told, like I was telling you before, when I was 12, 13, I, they would say, let's has tell it, or let's see tell it, let's see tell it, they would call me. Because I would tell, I'll let him do it. I would make up things with the story, you know, embellish the story. You know, I was just a guy who could tell a story. Any of the wise guys that you grew up with see it? Yeah, they saw it in 1991. A lot of them saw it in 91. When I brought it back until it was seven, most of them had, had passed on. What'd they think? They thought it was really good. It was funny. They all sat in the, like the first couple of rows and they were just shaking their heads. They weren't laughing. And I'm like, and as I'm doing the show, I'm like, oh God. And then I did the, uh, I saw them backstage. They went, ah, it's really funny. It was good. I was like, well, you could have fooled me, you know. You weren't really laughing, but they really liked it a lot. So you're this really gutsy, confident belief in yourself guy doing this one-person show that you have 100% control over from yeah. every performance to the lighting to everything. Mm. And then in comes Bob De Niro and yeah. a big movie company. And look, I think it was Hemingway who famously said, if you're going to write a movie, drive up to the border of California, just throw your script to the other side because after that, they're going to do whatever they want to do. Exactly. With it. How did you change and deal <laughs> with this big studio wanting to – change everything about what you, your life. I, I, because of Bob De Niro 
refused to let anyone touch my script. And do you have any specific examples of things that they wanted to change? Sure. You, yeah, give me, give me oh, something yeah. that like oh, typical God. Hollywood. Like, well, I'll give you the greatest one. They wanted Sonny to live, not die. Because they read the script. You know, they all got to, you know. So I'll never forget it. I read the script and I see one of the notes. Sonny cannot die. He's, too, he's a beloved character. He cannot die at the end. And I'm freaking out when I see this. Sonny's got to die. That's how the boy learns. Sonny, it's a catharsis. Sonny dies, so the boy goes with his father and lives on. He has to die. It's classic, it's classic dramatic structure. Homer, everything. If you look at all the structure, it's, it's a catharsis. Romeo and Juliet. The children die at the end, but the families come together. So I go, I run over over here when Bob lived over here on Tribeca. I go to his apartment. I walk in. I go, Bob, Bob, did you see the note they gave me? Sonny's got to die. They didn't want Sonny to live. And he's just looking at me. I go, Sonny can't live. I got to die. And I'm Sonny. And I, I don't care. I want to die. I got to die. And he just grabs the paper and he goes, oh, the facts? Yeah, I got one of these two. And he threw it in the pail. He said, don't worry about it. Nobody's going to bother you. And nobody ever bothered me again. Nobody talked to me again. It was really Bob De Niro who really believed in me. He said, I want it to be real and we're not going to Hollywood it up and sandblast it. And that's why the movie became, it is what it is. And it's been around for all these years. And it was his directorial debut. His directorial debut. He was did, great. Did you see any nervousness in him? No, no, God, no. No. I mean, come on. The guy's, you know, he's a major star. He's worked with Scorsese a lot. He had a, I used to go, my agent, people would go, well, but he's never directed before. And I would say, he's a major movie star. He's worked with Marty Scorsese. He had to learn something. I said, so let's not be crazy here now. You know, it's not like I'm asking Joe Blow on the corner to, to do it. You know, I mean, come on. Hey, look, everybody has to direct their first movie, right? He was great. So you you have this one-man show, mm. make it into a movie, big hit as a movie, yeah. wonderful film. As I told you earlier, I auditioned for the role. Yes. <laughs> as did every dark-haired kid every dark in this city. In, in this I was city. spotted, actually, at the Lee Strasberg Theater Institute yeah. by one of my teachers saying, are you Italian? I was like, yeah. no. They were like, it's okay. You look it. Don't worry about You're it. You're looking. Come on in. I did not get it. Just spoiler alert for everybody. Okay. So the movie comes out, big hit, and then you don't stop there, and then you want to make it into a musical. Why? Tell me about that process. Oh, sure. But, I, but I'll tell you, this is, there's a thing that happened before that. The, the movie comes out. It's a, it's a classic. People love the movie. And then in 207, I said, people would come over to me and say, oh, my God, I love the movie. But, you know, I, I really love the one-man show when I saw it in 91. And I go, oh, thanks. And so many people would tell me that. I said, you know, there's a whole generation of people who never saw the one-person show. I said, I'm still young. I, I'm going to go back and do it. So I went back. And I did it at the Walter Kerr Theater. And it was a hit again. Bigger than ever. And I had a $2 million advance. And I did it for six months. But another show was coming in. And we knew that. So we had to. But that, I was here for six months. I said, all right. You know, everybody saw it. Boom. I went back to making movies. Then in 2000 and let's see, four years ago. Let's say four years ago. 2012, 2013. Tommy Matola. Who did, who produced uh, the soundtrack of the movie said, you know what, this will make a great musical. And I said, I know, but Tommy, I always thought it would. And he said, you got to make this a musical. This this is a great musical. I said, you know what, I want Alan Menken to write the music. Just like that. Just you like knew that. right away. They said, and why Alan Menken? Yeah, why? 
I said, because Bronx Tale is a fable, and nobody writes fables better than Alan Menken. They're animation, but they're fables. And I said, and I worked with Alan Menken in 2004, 2004, when I directed a movie, and he did the music for it. And I had such a great time with him. And he's such a genius. He's, I'm telling you, I hate saying that word, but the man is truly a genius. He could just sit there. And we met and we talked. And I said, yeah. I said, you know, like something like doo-wop. I goes, oh, you mean like this? I mean, yeah. And Oh, yeah, then we could do this. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's such a sweet, humble guy. But he's truly a God-gifted genius who can write anything and make it great. He really can. And uh, Glenn Slater. Originally, I was going to do the lyrics. But then I met with Glenn Slater, and I saw his work, and I went, hey, man, this guy's great. I, let me just worry about the book and nothing else, you know? So, and then I said, great, let's come on in. And, uh, you know, I had great people, you know, Glenn Slater, uh, and then Sergio Trulio, uh, who is an incredible choreographer. Bob, Bob De Niro directed the one-man show, uh, directed the movie. Jerry Zachs directed the one-man show. Hmm. They co-directed. I mean, I they co-directed the musical. So I, I had great, great people. The Dodgers with the Jersey Boys. So all the forces came together, Ken. And uh, we just had to do a great... I had to write a great book. And uh, Alan and Glenn did the lyrics and music. And we put it up. And you know what? Bam. Again. It's the story. You know, the story just... story just works, man. It's one of those stories that just people... In Japan, it's a huge hit in Japan. I don't understand why. Have you seen it? No, I, I saw it in uh, the, the movie, the movie in, Japan? In, in Japanese. Yeah, it's a people in Japan. They see me. I'm like, I'm like, the, you know, Marlon Brando. They love me. Oh my God, we love everywhere. Europe, Spain, everywhere in Europe, people love it. That's why it's going to be. It's going to do great when we put it on the road in a musical. They just love the story. Man. They love the story. So tell me a little bit about that collaborative process on making the musical. Yeah. How did you, did, working as a book writer, yeah. would you write a scene first and then go to Alan? Would they write something? How did it work? Did you get I would write. Room? I would write a scene because we kept to the story. Again, we kept Bob and Jerry said, keep to the story. Just tell it in a musical form. I've never written a musical before, but I studied a lot of, I read a lot of musicals. I looked at them. I was reading them. And I said, oh, I could do this, you know. And look, I had Alan Mankin and Glenn Slater, who are real musical guys. And so I would write the scene. And obviously, I would write the scene really long for a musical. And then they would explain to me, like, hey, most of the scene has to be the lyrics. So, but the, the scene sets up. The song in a musical, you know, and I, and I got that right away. Then I said, Oh, I get it. But I knew we're all, because I did the one man show so many times, I knew where all the high points were. I knew where it, it needed a song. I said, it needs a song here. It needs a song here. And, you know, you know, the door test, that has to be a song. That has to be something that, but then you have to tell the door. You know, so I knew, you know, one of the great ones, you have to have a song, one of the great ones. And it was great. I mean, Alan and, and Glenn helped me a lot. And they just, and it was just a wonderful collaboration with them too. And Tommy Matola was involved in the beginning. 
He was very, very smart. He was the head of Sony for all those years. He's got great musicality about himself. And what you talk about what you learned from Alan and Glenn in terms of the composition of a musical scene. Give me one piece of wisdom that Jerry Zaks dropped on you in this process. Like legendary director Jerry Zaks has done so many musicals. Anything that you learned from him? The thing I learned from Jerry is, is less is more. Edit, edit, edit. Edit, keep editing. Until you have to put things back, you know, cut to the spine of the story. And that's a very helpful thing. I, 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 I learned that years ago in film. And I even, but Jerry even stressed it more in theater that, you know, 30 seconds is a long time. You could feel the audience just go, you know, so that's why it was so, so beneficial to us to do it out of town. And to watch and say, okay, this scene could be just a little shorter. This is a little longer. We're rushing this. This song, we can have a better song here, you know. So, um, wow. So we were able to, but even from day one when we did it at, at the paper mill, it was really good. And we just made it better for Broadway, you know. You've worked a lot in Hollywood and now on Broadway. Yeah. Is there anything that the theater can learn from Hollywood? You know, not everyone who works here gets to, do as many films as you've done yeah. in, in Hollywood. Any Anything that you think the theater could learn from Hollywood that could make us do our jobs a little bit more effectively here? I think what the theater could learn from Hollywood and what Hollywood could learn from the theater. That's what I think. You know, if you look back, Ken, at the, at the movies from the 40s, the 50s, 60s, even the 70s, even a little bit the 80s, it changed after Jaws when the big blockbusters came in. But if you think about the movies, especially the 40s, 50s, and 60s, there were great stories. There was great stories, you know. It wasn't special effects. It wasn't all that. But we have, we have fed the public a diet of these comic book heroes, and there's nothing wrong with those movies. Nothing. They're fun. I go see them myself. I love Iron Man. I love watching Robert Downey and that, and Spider-Man. I think they're, you know, they're fun. It's a great popcorn movie. But I, I think Hollywood could learn that, okay, man, tell a great story, too. There's something about a great story, but they don't want, it doesn't pay for them to do that. And I think the theater community, what they could learn from Hollywood, wow, that's a good question. I, I love the theater the way it is, you know. What I like about it is, is that the writer's the king. You can't change an and or a but. And I think that's why, you know, I think that's why we just worry, we're worried about story here. We're not worried so much about spectacle. Yes, do you need a star sometimes on Broadway? Sure you do. But if you don't have a star, if you have a good story, sometimes, you know, it finds its audience. I, we don't have any stars, big stars in Bronx Tale. No, we don't. You know, The story is the star. The story is the star. The story is the star. If it ain't on the stage, you know what they say, if it ain't on the stage, man, forget it. It's got to be on the stage. I mean... I, I saw some, and then you, you, I think you got to learn to keep the budget down in a music. I think that's very important, you know, because so because there are, there will be tough times. Seventy, you know, say the you know bad week, seventy percent. You want to be able to sustain that, you know. I, you know, I saw some wonderful plays this year that closed because they, I, I guess, they just couldn't sustain them. Maybe they were running at too high a cost, you know. I thought Evan Han- uh, Dear Evan Hansen was just wonderful. I really, really like that a lot. You ever thought about a sequel to A Bronx Tale? I've been hearing that for years. I I don't know. I don't know. You know, 
why do a sequel when I could just keep redoing the same? You right. Know? You're you're continuing to do it, right? Yeah. Every once in a while, Vegas or wherever you I still do the one-man show. Yeah. I'm doing it at Atlantic City, October 7th at the Golden Nugget. I do it. I still do the one-man show, and I go out there, and it's fantastic. I sold out already, 2,000 seats. Are you doing it? Wow, that's amazing. Oh, you just interrupted my question because I was yeah. like, oh, my God, you're selling it out now. So yeah. amazing. And is it... How different is it for you now doing it? Are you is there a different perspective? Do you do the characters differently with you no? I do the same. Sometimes I, I have to rehearse more now. <laughs> if I don't do it for a while, because I have three different versions in my head. I have the movie, and I used to have the music, the movie, and the one minute show. Now I got the musical because I, you know, I, I was there at rehearsals, and I, I go watch it to make sure everything's okay, give notes. So I got three different versions of that. So when I know I'm doing it, I go I go intense rehearsal for just the one man show. Now you've done a lot of different things in the business world, right? You had a restaurant. I you... still have a restaurant three blocks from the show. Three. <laughs> I love your synergy here. You got the one man yeah. show directing people to the musical. You got the musical directing yeah. people to the restaurant. One night, one night you're gonna laugh. One night I was doing the one man show. Where was I doing it? I was doing it upstate. And oh, I'm sorry, I was in Florida. I was doing the show in Florida, the one man show. My restaurant was packed and we were packed at the musical. And I'm like, hey man, things are good. <laughs> so let's talk about this a little bit because I have this real belief that, that some of the most successful artists we know have this innate business entrepreneurship inside them that they may not even know like you were doing even at the beginning like i gotta get an agent i'm gonna do a show yeah do you think of yourself as a businessman yes absolutely and where do you where'd you learn this side of it i just i just think i just think um people always ask me this question how did you write a screenplay your first screenplay you know you never never took lessons how to do it and i and I always say that, that I, and I say this humbly, please, I want to make sure that I'm gifted. I, I wasn't, wasn't great in, in school, was better in college. High school, I, I, I had dyslexic and I didn't know it. So I, I actually, I, in, in, in elementary school, they thought I was dumb. And to be honest with you, I thought I was dumb because they didn't know what um, dyslexia was. They just thought I was slow. You know, I couldn't spell or read. I still am a horrible speller. I'm, st- I'm better now because of spell check and still can't math. And, um, but sometimes God takes away one thing and he gives you something else. It's like a blind man who's blind, but he has great hearing. For whatever reason, I could sit down at a computer and see the script in my head. I could feel the audience watching it. I could feel the, the drama as I'm writing. I, I don't know how. I don't know why. I could feel it like. And do you remember as a kid, did people thinking you were dumb affect you? Did it I, I think in the way I, at all? I, I think it, I think it hurt a little, it hurt me a little bit, but I had such parents who gave me such great self-esteem that I think that overcompensated that, you see. But I, I just, you know, I was this street kid who, who was a writer and an actor and, and I, 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 used, I used to be a writer. I used to have to hide it from the guys because I was hanging out with all these tough guys, you know. I, I didn't want to say to them, I'm writing poetry. What am I writing? Poetry. What the kind of guy are you, you know? But I but was. But you did. But I did. I was this artist trapped in this body. That's why Bullets Over Broadway, when I got that part, it was me. Do you know that? I mean, even, even Woody Allen would, t- and I talked about it. He goes, that was you. I go, yeah, it was me. Yeah. Anything you would have done differently 
now looking back on your career, like, oh, you know what? I would have zigged there instead of zagging, or I would have done this. The only thing I always say was, I wish I'm okay with everything the way it turned out. God, I wouldn't change a thing. But if I could really go back, I would have liked to have gone to a really big time college. But I just didn't have the, I, I didn't have the marks, you know. I, I didn't, I didn't know better. And what about a big time college interests you? Like why? What, because what, I see my children going to, to Berkeley, and my, my daughter wants to go to Michigan, maybe. And I go, wow, that must be fun to be. But I had such a great childhood. I mean, I can't ask for. I mean, I went to the College of the Street, you know, and I learned a lot. I was always good at retaining, like something would happen with Sonny or, or the wise guys and I would retain it. I don't know how, but when I was writing about it, I just retained everything and I would write about it. I don't understand that. But again, not terrible in school. I mean, I just passed in high school. I mean, just passed, like 65, you know, just. And then, then in college, I realized that when I worked harder, my marks got better. So then I understood, I waited, I just got to work harder. And then my marks got better. And I really worked because I said, I'm going to be good in this. And my marks, my index, my index went up. But I didn't know I had dyslexia till my son, when he was, when he was two or three, he would, he talked like very early. And it was like scary. He talked so great. But then his reading, when he got into school, wasn't matching it. So my wife said, something's wrong. He reads, he speaks so well, but his reading is lower than average. So she had him tested immediately, dyslexic. And when I was, the doctor's telling us about what dyslexia is, I went, uh, uh, uh. I said, wait a second, what? I said, that's me. And then I realized that I, that's when I realized I was, that's what it was. Imagine that. I love this idea that you said about God takes away one thing, but gives you another, because as you describe it to me, you talk about this skill, like for some reason I could retain it. It sounds like you were adapting to your world, like I, I couldn't read it or I couldn't write it. So I learned how to do something else exactly. to survive, exactly. which led to your success. Yes. I, I don't, like I would have to write a an essay on, I remember I had to write an essay on D.H. Lawrence about his work. And I, and I, just, I just read D.H. Lawrence. And after I read the story, I went, The Rocking Horse. That's what it was. I can't, I, I can almost tear up now. It was a thing called D.H. Lawrence, The Rocking Horse. And I read it and I went, I know what he means by this. Yeah. And, and I wrote it down and I got the highest mark on the clip. Now, I, I don't know how that happens, but I, I, I don't know. Your son's an actor. So my son's an actor, a singer, and a songwriter. Yes. How do you feel about that? Tremendous. Very talented. Gifted. My daughter, too. Gifted. My daughter, Gabrielle, the same thing. Both gifted. My wife, my wife was an actress and a writer. So they have the genes. You know, my wife, Gianna, and my son, Dante, and my daughter, Gabriella. Both gifted. Very good. Audition for Blue Bloods got on. Audition for Orange is the New Black got the part. I mean. In the genes. It's in the genes, man. It's in the genes. Well, it sounds like they also have very supportive parents yes. like you did. I'm going to, t- uh, do I have time to tell you a quick story? Please. I- okay. You can take all the time you no, want no, no. to tell such great stories. <laughs> my people go, well, how, you know, when, you know, how come you, you didn't, your self-esteem didn't get, I said, I'll tell you, I said, cause I'll tell you the type of parents I had. My parents, when I was 20, we moved out of the Bronx. We finally left the Bronx. We moved and they, we, we moved into a, an apartment building where they were on the top and I was on the bottom floor and they were on top of me. And, when I would run out of money, when I was in, you know, in my twenties, I would run out of money and, and I was bouncing and I would write a, on a card, dear dad, could you lend me $20 on an index card? And I put it under the door because I get home really late from bouncing. And, um, 
Next morning, I wake up. There's twenty dollars underneath my uh, door, and I go, oh, "Dad, thanks, Dad, thanks, Mom." And that went on for like six months. I needed money, and then I got a part off Broadway, and I need I didn't have to didn't need it anymore. Then life went on, you know. Cut to twenty years later, I get nominated for Academy Award. I said, "My parents, I want you to come down the red carpet with me. My wife is pregnant." I said, "Me and John, I want you." Then my dad like, "No, no, no." I said, "No, no, no." All the years, you know, we get in the limo, we're waiting online to get out of the thing. And my father says, I'm going to give it to him now. My mother goes, yeah. My father puts his hand in his pocket, takes out an envelope, and he hands it to me. He goes, this is for you. We saved it for you. I go, what? We said, we wanted to give it to you today. And I open up the uh, envelope, and there's all these index cards in it. And I see $20, $10, $20. And I forgot. I said, what? I said, that's my handwriting, but what is this? He goes, don't you remember when you had no money, you kept, you needed money for gas, we kept putting the money. He goes, we saved these for you because we knew this day was going to come and we were going to give them to you when you got nominated. Who are these people? <laughs> Where do you have the foresight to say, you know what, we'll save these cards because when he gets nominated for Academy Award, we'll give it all. Are you kidding me? That's a great lesson in parenting right there. <laughs> And my father's the guy who said the saddest thing in life is wasted talent. And he said to me, promise me, you won't waste your talent. I said, I promise that. So I kept my promise. Advice to all those actors, writers out there that are starving right now about yeah. what they should do to, to kickstart their career? I would say, I would tell them, like I, I, I tell all the, uh, the young actors and writers and directors, there's an old saying, you know, you got to knock on them, uh, knock on a lot of doors. I say, no. You got to knock on the most doors the most often. It's, you don't get the things you want in life. You get the things that you must have. You, if you want to be an actor, then you, that's it. You got to do it. You want to be a writer. You, you got to work at it. You got to do it. There was no, people go, well, I have a second, I have a fallback position. You know what? If you have a fallback position, usually you fall back on it. For me, it was either this or die. I mean, I, 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 I don't mean to be dramatic, but I don't know what else to say. I mean, I was approaching 40 years old, and I, I said, I, without a net, no money, no health insurance, nothing. I said, okay, man, I don't care. I'm in it. I'm in it, and that's it. So I think you got to have that kind of, if you're an actor, get on stage. Do do showcases. Do, uh, do class. If you're a writer, write every day. Give your scripts to agents. But you can't just stop. You, nobody's going to knock on your door in your home and go, Hey, Jazz, why don't you come out? I want you. It's not going to happen. You're an actor. They have to see you. You're a writer. They got to see your work. So you just constantly keep trying. That's it. Okay, my last question, which uh, we refer to here as the genie question. I want you to imagine that the genie from Aladdin yeah. comes to visit you right. and says, Jazz, I want to thank you for your incredible story that has enriched the lives of millions and millions of people now over the years. And I want to grant you one wish. You're such a positive guy, which I love. And there's no question about it in my mind. Your positivity has led to your success. But is there anything about your experience on Broadway that in the theater, even as a theater goer, that drives you crazy? That gets you as angry as one of those wise guys used to get back in the neighborhood that you'd ask this genie to wish away with a snap of a finger? What's one thing about the theater that you'd love to change? Wow, Jesus, that's a hell of a question. One thing about the theater that I would love to change, I would, I guess it would be that, I guess it would be that I would like to see the story be the star, and I would like to see more people take a chance with a great story and 
just actors as opposed to the, if we don't have a star, we can't do the play. I would like to, people to take a chance. And I know it's a business, and I do understand it. And and being a producer myself, it, I fall prey to it when I, I go, oh, we can get him. Well, that would be great. But you know what? I wish we didn't have to feel that way, that let the story be the star and have more people more people get chances to, to appear on Broadway and more writers will be seen on Broadway because many things never get done can because if we can't if we don't have a star we just won't do it and I think that's sad. That is a great wish, and I'll tell you, I'll take that to heart as a producer, and all of you theater goers out there take that to heart as well because you can help make this happen by going to see shows that don't have stars in them. Yeah, I think that's I think that's really great because the see there's a negative to having a star in your show too, that when the star leaves it's over, you know. But if you don't have stars in the show and the story holds it together. That people can come in and out, and you could run for years and years and years. Like a Bronx tale. Like a Bronx tale. Thank you so much for being here today and for being such an inspiration to so many people out there. Yeah. I really appreciate it. I, you're very welcome. And I tell people, come see the show, and then come to my restaurant, Chaz Palmateri's, 30 West 46th Street, three blocks away. I'm there to say hi. Fantastic. Thanks so much to all of you for listening. We'll see you next time. Hey, don't forget, if you want more of these podcasts, do us a favor, tell your friends about it, and leave us a big old sweet review on iTunes or whatever your listening platform. Tell your friends and leave us a review. Thanks so much. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.